You're listening to 94.9 The River. And one of my favorite things about Boise is that we're surrounded by so much Wild West history, all of it within an hour of any direction. So I'm really excited that we're chatting today with author Stacy Gwill about Foot Park and the people who made Boise and the waterways come through town. Thanks for joining us, Stacy. Thank you very much, Rochelle. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, we had a good time the other day going out and doing a little exploring on our own, right? We certainly did. I, it was wonderful to be able to take you up there. I know you had been up there before, but it was great to have somebody up there that was so interested in the in the foot park and the foots. You, you knew a lot more about it than I do, so it was very exciting to see it through your eyes. Always fun to share. So we're talking about a location that's fascinating historical park in the Treasure Valley. It's just a few minutes from Boise, just below Lucky Peak Dam, and I like to hang out there with my dog once in a while. And, you know, historically, two things could make a large city in the Wild West. It seems like it was gold and water, Right, right. And so while one man struggled to engineer the waterways here, his not-so-behind-the-scenes wife helped support their family with these illustrations to famous authors and publications while raising a family on the Boise River near what is now Lucky Peak. People drive by this all the time, and I just don't think most people know about it. I don't think they do. Um, that we're changing that. Yes. And who were some of the people she did illustrations for to make this? She did Nathaniel Hawthorne. She did incredible illustrations for The Scarlet Letter. Longfellow, that just comes to mind, that's just quite amazing. And Louisa May Alcott, right? And Yes, exactly. Yeah, the Scarlet Letter illustrations. I haven't seen some of the other ones yet, but the lighting on some of those, just incredible. And the detail. Mm-hmm. She's a, extraordinary. She was known as the Dean of Women Illustrators. So um, in what year did Mary and Arthur Foote step off the training CUNA to start this new life along the Boise River? <laughs> that, would been a, that would have been 19, 1884. 1884. And I don't know if people can wrap their minds around that. At the year that we're at now, um, what things were like here, and there was very little of it. We'll get into more about that now. But I would like to know more about the book you wrote about it so people can get their hands on this. Tell us about the uh, book, The Stone House in the Canyon. The Stone House in the Canyon began probably, I began writing it maybe five years ago, but it represents probably 20 years of just digging into information. I learned about the foots, and then someone said, you need to go up and see this house in the canyon where it was. And once I was up there, I was just amazed, over overwhelmed with how rugged the canyon was and the idea that these folks lived out there and built this home. But then when I went to look for any information on it, it was all scattered all over. And I felt it was just a missing piece. So that's how the book got started. And that's exactly why I wanted to track you down. And, and so it was fun while we were out there together to sort of look at those things together. And yeah. because I'd been out there for years and I knew something was going on. I could see a few things and remnants. And I thought, I'm not sure what happened here. But when I saw that you'd done a book on it, it was mm-hmm. great that you responded and could come in and talk with me about this. Because I think it's such a big piece of Boise history. But why do you think most people don't know about it? I, I'm i not sure why, honestly. The, of course, the 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 all that was up there um, before maybe five years ago was just the ruins and one small interpretive sign. Now, thanks to these two incredible women that did this grassroots effort, we do have this this wonderful interpretive center. So it's beginning to get more and more notice. That was uh, Janet Worthington and Marianne Arnold did this incredible five year project to get it to honor both the foots. I, I just feel like it is sort of a missing part of the history that isn't honored quite enough, which another purpose of my book. 
mm-hmm. is to get that information out there. And they've done such a good job with the park out there. With the, yeah. You were showing me the vegetation they have. They've really tried to recreate yeah. some mm-hmm. of that. So let's um, set the scene for this. This is life before Lucky Peak. What de- decade was this, and what was life in general like for folks in Boise at that time? And this would have been in the – she arrived. They arrived in the 1883. By then, it was, wasn't even a state yet. Uh, the town was much smaller, of course, and uh, mostly that was for supplying the mining industry that was around them, the mining camps. So it really didn't wasn't a very big town. Most of the architecture was a Victorian type, gingerbread homes, and um, and Mary Halleck Foot. And when she first got there, was a little. She thought maybe it was a little low lower class to her. Sure, from what she comes from, less mm-hmm. culture. But then she began to really embrace Idaho and and the city of Boise. So we keep in mind that there wasn't any TV yet, being this year right. that it was. And the first news radio broadcast didn't happen until 1920. So right. newspapers and magazines, this was kind of the only way that people got their news. And so many of Mary's illustrations of how people were living here made it to the East to get people sort of educated on what was happening here. Right. right. What drew you really to the story of Mary Hallickfoot? I was working on my PhD, and mostly of that was on Ernest Hemingway, but I wanted to expand a little bit what I was working on and started looking and found the Foots, the story of the Foots, and was so impressed with the contributions both of them made, both historically, economically, to this culturally, to Boise. Then a friend of mine suggested I go up to this ruins up in the canyon, and I said, wait, what? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then went up there, and again, as I said, I was just so overwhelmed with the enormity of it and just drawn to the story. I think all homes have stories to tell. And I just knew that that foundation with just that split rail fence around it had a lot of stories to tell. That And that's what just, I then I became like a dog with a bone. I was going to find out the more about it. And, and it was it was quite the journey to find all the different sources and put them all together, but it was very fun, too, bringing all these stories in and making it tell a story. I mean, her story and his story and the house story. And just to clarify, we're talking about a park that's across from Discovery Park on your way out of town, about 10 minutes from Boise. Um, and if you cross Lytle, if you cross Lucky Peak Dam and go to the right, you can head down to Foot Park. It's Foot with an E, and you'll be able to see the ruins of what we're talking about and the park there. It's uh, something people pass all the time driving to Idaho City or going up to the mountains to Stanley. Take five minutes and drive over there and, and check out what we're talking about because it's really pretty amazing. Um, so the the canyon, the uh, the Lytle Creek or Little Creek, we're not sure how it's pronounced or how it's spelled, but um, what would you say it would be like a day in the life living there? What do you think their average day was like? I think their average day would depend, of course, on the time of year. And also they were back in the, 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 um, the, the backing that they had, financial backing, was always uneven. So that would always depend on what they were doing. For instance, if when they were when they lost a lot of the funding, the the men, her husband and the engineers was, were down working on new project inventions, and she called them the prisoners of hope, as they waited. Then other times when things were really going well, I think it was probably a really um, dynamic dynamic place because it was not only just Mary Halleck Foot and their children, but 
her sister, her brother-in-law, their children. They had the engineers there. They had a cook. I think it would have been a really fun place to be. I think they were all together, very close family, it appeared. And um, I think that it would have been, I would have liked to visit. Mm -hmm. And they had visitors come and um, enjoy it. And I wanted you to throw out info on uh, the canal that used to be there. It was, I guess, before everything really got built, but the one that ran along the front of where they lived. Right. You can see now that the water's down in the river and it's changed, you can see the the edge of, w- of what was the original canal. Especially by Diversion Dam. As we drove out the there, dam. I hadn't mm-hmm. really noticed that before. Yes. Put it together, that's what it was. It really helped when the snow was on there. You could really see that ledge. Mm-hmm where that original canal was. Right, and then we, we saw the footings. I was pointing out that we one did. tiny thing I knew that you hadn't seen yet was <laughs> the footings mm-hmm. of the uh, original right. f- footbridge. We can get into yes. into that yes. in a bit. Um, I would love to, if you have a second, hear some of your favorite quotes that she has made about this experience. Um, I have quite a, a, a it's, it's really hard to pick all of them because she is a beautiful writer, so lyrical, and yet so accurate in her descriptions. I think one of the most famous ones before she arrived in Idaho and only knew about Idaho, her, the, the anticipation of coming to Idaho was darkest Idaho, thousands of acres of desert empty of history. And also then she goes on to say that no girl ever wanted less to go west with any man or paid a man greater compliment by doing so. So you can see how her the, the arc of her interest in Idaho and her love of Idaho was definitely slowly slowly took a while to come around (laughs) but when she got here and the other thing is she was so supportive of her husband and she believed in him so much that she began to absorb his enthusiasm for this project irrigation project I think that's my favorite part of the story because it's it's mostly about her but he was trying so hard to make this happen and she was really really supportive financially and and just to be there as a great partner feel free to read as many other quotes as you'd like you know, they once they moved out there, they well, they moved into town and lived with uh, her sister and brother-in-law. Brother-in-law had both come as well, so they moved into this small house, rented house called the Father Mespley House, out near the outskirts of Boise, and were doing fine for a year while he would go back and forth to the project. Then they lost the funding. It was a panic, of economic panic back east. And they decided, well, the only way they were going to be able to afford to live was not pay rent and come in and live in this small miner's cabin at that point. There was no canyon house at that point. And they all moved up there in a ride about Easter. So there were 11 of them, and she called themselves the uh, Little Creek Crowd. But they had a wonderful summer, as, as Mary Hallickfoot always seemed to do, was, oh, we you know counted all the wildflowers, and we had picnics down on the beach, and... We rode horses around, and it was like a big, almost like a summer vacation. So she embraced that right away, which is wonderful. And then finally, as fall came around, they realized that they were going to need to stay there. And so this is one of the things she wrote. She said, and now autumn has given warning. The wild geese were flying south. The sun set earlier in the brooding intensity of color, and a longer, more marvelous afterglow followed calling us all out of the house to watch it deepen and flood the world above us. I think uh, those words are just beautiful. 
Such a beautiful writer. Um, and I was going to say, it seems like the biggest part of the day would have maybe been the sunset. I believe so, too. Yes. Beautiful sunsets. She would talk about at night, the sounds of the river would be the only <laughs> the only sound she would hear is that roar of the river. Can't imagine that even now. <laughs> I know. This is lovely. So you know, we're talking about the time of history this was in Boise. And um, I had asked you about this. Neither of us really knew what was Idaho before it was Idaho. Exactly. And so I, I did a little research on that because I'm uh-huh. like, I kind of want to know myself. We were Idaho Territory, which apparently was made up of Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. And we oh, were a quarter okay. bigger than Texas. And then it was 1890 that we became a state. So at the time this was happening, we were still Idaho Territory. That's how long ago. That's how long ago it was. This all took place. And we were speaking about how great her quotes are in her writing. Did you have that quote handy about uh, the passing of her daughter? Yes. This this happened long after they moved Mm -hmm. away from Boise, and she lost their daughter from complications of appendicitis. And I was just reading this to you the other day, and I, I just think it's so beautiful. It really describes one way to describe grief. She said, it remains an extra heartbeat, big and heavy, that throbs once and sinks again like a great wave striking the shore that comes from far away. It is sure to come again. Just beautiful. It's incredible. So she she did words the same way she painted. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Very beautiful. That was her younger daughter, Agnes. Agnes was born in the Canyon House after they moved in, and they called her the Canyon Baby. Oh, wow. Yes. And and I meant to ask you this, but I'll ask you now. I was just wondering out there, I'm not sure what we had as far as hospitals. I mean, do you you think this was at home, or could they go somewhere? Oh, it was definitely out in the Canyon. There's quite a, she makes quite of an interesting little story that she went into labor, and Bessie, her sister, was in town, and so her Arthur went running into town and grabbed grabbed her away and put her in in the little buggy and they went up across the bluffs and down in towards the house on the south side of the river and at one point the horse stumbled mm. and Bessie fell out but landed on the cushion of the of the little buggy and was fine but uh, it's it's. Barry Hallickfoot makes quite a cute little story about it. But you know, the baby was born there. Things we take for granted. You yes. can't get on the phone and tell someone or call the ambulance yeah. to come. So. Yeah, there was a lovely, I don't have this quote, but that when the baby was born, apparently they said that it was a double rainbow uh, in, the, in the canyon above them. Nice. When the baby was born. The canyon baby. <laughs> if you have a couple more quotes you want to share, I could put those. Sure. Um, the house itself is another... Fascinating archaeological, I mean, architectural creation because it really isn't anything like the homes that were there in Boise at all. It's very much Frank Lloyd Wright design before Frank Lloyd oh, Wright. Wow. It was made from the materials right around the the site. It's like lava rock and basalt. Yeah, the lava and, yeah. rock and had these thick, thick stone walls that were two feet thick to protect it from the heat in the summer and the cold in the winter. And it was very low to the ground. And when they finished it, she said, the house, when finished, looked as if it had stood there a hundred years, as if it had just grown out of the hill. It's beautiful. And indeed, it does look like that in the pictures of it. We have, fortunately, do have some photos of the house. That was another thing that was wonderful about my research is, in this case, we have archival photos. We have her descriptions in her memoirs and letters. 
We have her illustrations. She used her home in her illustrations, either for other people or for her own stories. And so we have a lot of, and we have an archaeological reports, two of them. So I was able to draw a lot from all those and get a real picture of the home. And so um, talk about the house itself. What was the layout and interior design like? The layout was the, this, the first floor had five rooms. It was about 2,000 square feet total, but it was 13, cent, 13 meters square. It had, as you walked in, you had the parlor on the right. On the left, they had a what they called the junior's room because it was also the headquarters of the Idaho Mining Irrigation Company, an irrigation company that, that her husband was the chief engineer of. So it was, that's the other thing that makes it important. It was the headquarters of the project as well as the family home. And then it had a wonderful um, parlor in the back. And then on the right, the house makes an L, and that's E-L-L, where the kitchen came out mm. in an L. And then they have a window there where they look right out towards the canyon, towards the opening of the canyon, as towards Boise. And um, she, she, they were very careful to have that window and the view that they wanted. And she writes this, the V-shaped notch where the river went out and the sunset looked in bounded our world towards the valley. The bend in the river above us where the hills interlocked shut us off in that direction. So they felt like they were on their own little world. And the interesting thing about that house is the upper, the upper story was wood frame and it had three three chimneys because there were three fireplaces. But each of the dorm, there's three dormer windows facing a different direction. So they would have a view of the entire canyon. They were very, very interested in having what the light did in the home. That's when she talks about walking through the house before they were even moved in. As she talks about how the light filtered in through the house, and that meant a lot to them, to her especially. Uh, here's, and then of course when they moved in. They they had been traveling around the West for several years before that. And she talks about how, she says, all our plunder from our past trips fitted those rugged home-like rooms. All the old things looked much at home in the new house. And that was the other incredible thing to me was the interior of the home. It had the things that they brought with them. It, um, she was very interested in culture and art. And they had, so they had paintings by Titian. They had... There were um, different articles all over the home that reflected her interest in art and culture. So that was another really, for me, an important part of it. And I was mentioning before, when we think about older houses, we think about them in black and white. So for the, for the uh, book, I decided I would like to do a mock-up and do the colors mm -hmm. and do a color mock-up. Mm -hmm. So I used her descriptions of what she had brought, the Kensington rug or curtains that she brought from mm -hmm. town and made it made people made us aware of how colorful it was and mm -hmm. the other thing they did is bring in the colors from the the environment around them she talks about the woodwork being painted a sage green and the floors were pine uh, pine floors and pine ceilings so it's just a beautiful cozy home 
this beautiful, unique home in the canyon, unlike everything around it. Um, describe what that little footbridge was like. That they, if you think about, it, there was no Lucky Peak, there was no bridge across the That's river. Right. So to get to this house, what did you have to do? There were several ways. The, the one of the, the ways that they tried to use the most was a boat. They would take it from the from the Idaho City, Idaho, Boise, Idaho wagon road. Was they would take a boat from there and it go across. However, they named the boat the Irrigator, as I was mentioning to you, because it, it leaked a lot, and they would get wet. But they that was one way, and they would have horses then where their lucky peak would be where the stables were, and then they would take the boat across. There was also a very scary, she calls it, horse trail that hugged the bluffs right against the bluffs on the south side. And then the other way was this very crude wagon road that went about a quarter mile south of the house and then went up through the um, drainage and up and hit the Oregon Trail. So that was the three ways to get to the house. The other thing they decided to do when they couldn't get across the river when, and when it was frozen is they decided to build a suspension bridge, if you can believe it. And it, there's a picture of it in the book. And it is just terrifying. She talks about how terrifying. You said there was just a handrail on it one side. It was a handrail only on one side. And it swayed when they when they walked across, Dad, and she was terrified of that. So with all these options, you were telling me um, over the weekend, how did they get a piano up there? Exactly. That's another wonderful story that she tells that she, after the baby was born, she was confined, of course, before the baby was born because she had had several miscarriages. She was, they didn't want her to travel into town. Then after the baby was born, she had some difficulties herself, internal problems. And so she was actually had been in the cab, the, out in the canyon 10 months. And she talks about just how confining that was. And so they were, she was getting pretty grumpy about it. And um, <laughs> she, one of the engineers said, well, let's take a walk and we'll see if we can just, you know, get your, get you outside a bit. And she said, all of a sudden she heard Beethoven coming from the open window of the canyon house. And Arthur had actually bought her a piano uh, and, and somehow got it out there in the canyon. It was just amazing to me, but she did it. That is a great story. And we're talking about Mary Halleck Foote and Arthur Foote, who were a big part of Boise history a lot of people aren't aware of. So give us a quick little background on this Mary Halleck Foote and, and her, you know, you said she was um, cultured and very different probably than most people that were around here. Yes. Coming from a different location, talk about her schooling and things that she was into doing. She grew up in a Quaker family back east in Milton, New York, and had a, a very wonderful knack for, for drawing and ended up at the Cooper School, Cooper Union School of Drawing and Design. And so she had a very good education. That is also where she met her very, very good friend, lifelong friend, Helen Decay Gilder, who she then writes all this correspondence, which is one of the ways we know so much about her life. And um, she was at that point already being recognized as an incredibly gifted illustrator. So she was already having doing ones for Nathaniel Hawthorne, for example, and then met this engineer, mining engineer, and who whisked her away to the, <laughs> to the West and she never returned. But what was wonderful about her is she did have a really wonderful sense of adventure and I think that helped because she, when she started doing the, her traveling with her husband, she was almost set free. 
as far as her sense of adventure and be able to to explore and do things and live in different places. She really absorbed it. And they, they lived in a lot of interesting places. They lived in Deadwood, Colorado, and Almaden, California. They were, you know, all around. And they went to Mexico at some point as well. So before they, this is all before they got to Boise. But her family was a very cultured family, and, and they knew a lot of very uh, famous artists and musicians and etc. So she really did have that background. So while Mary is doing these amazing illustrations and pulling some money and it seems like at the time that um, Mary was a little bit more successful than Arthur as he's struggling to get these plans together for the waterways. Yes, in fact it was it was the proceeds from her book John Bodwin's testimony that actually paid uh, allowed them to build the house out there. So she was pretty much the major breadwinner until the point that they moved and went to Grass Valley. The rest of the, rest of the time, he, he traveled. He had different jobs and did struggle with that as well. He was a very um, interesting man. He, he was very quiet, but he also had a really important sense of what was right and wrong. And in the mining business during that period, there was a lot of things that weren't done so well. And he couldn't deal with it, and that's how he ended up moving into different jobs. But she always supported him. She called him her ditch digger, <laughs> and and he supported her as well. He he was in favor of all of things, helped her have time to write, and was very proud of her. And he, and again, on the other side, she supported him. She traveled with him. She learned a lot of geological terms, as in angle of repose is one of them, mm-hmm. but, and, and um, entertained his friends. So they were, it, was a, it was a wonderful relationship that those two had. So, and speaking of books, what's the name of her memoir? Her memoirs is uh, A Victorian Gentlewoman in the Far West. And it is, it is a wonderful book to read. Wonderful. And then you have your book. We're speaking with Stacy Gwill, the author of The Stone House in the Canyon. So if you're interested in this topic at all, definitely get those two books. And since we're talking about books, let's briefly touch on The Angle of Repose. <laughs> Angle of Repose, yes. I'll let you give a brief uh, description of, of what this was about. Well, um, Wallace Stegner, what, when he was a professor at Stanford, teacher at Stanford, one of his graduate students decided he wanted to write about Mary Halleck Foote. Stegner had already taught about um, Mary Halleck Foote's stories previous to that. So he and this graduate student went to the family of Mary Halleck Foote's and um, talked to them and, and asked if they could get some material to write this master's thesis that this young student was going to do. And they got all this information. Well, then the student ended up not finishing the master's thesis, and Stegner at at some point decided that he wanted to take up the the story. And he went back to the to the the family and got some more more information about them. And originally, he told them he was going to write a biography, and they were all for it. But some somewhere along the line, Stegner felt that it would make a better novel than it would a story of Mary Halleck Foote. So he then began to write a story based on Mary Halleck Foote's life and and Arthur's life. And it won the Pulitzer Prize in 1971. 
It's quite, it's, and it's very popular, but the problem that folks that uh, are, that know a lot about Mary Hallett Foote, and including her family, was that he sort of used her life pretty much verbatim, all of, all of her family, their whole story, but then kind of twisted her personality a bit to make her a much more harsh. A very different character. Angry, yeah, mm-hmm. angry character. And then in the end, he, that, and, and then he did use a lot of her words. And he said to him, it meant, he said, well, her words were like, I saw them as broken rocks. I could make any kind of wall I wanted. And that's how he felt about it. Um, so a lot of the passages that you read in Angle of Repose are actually from either her memoirs or from her letters. And that, of course, was very bothersome to the family. They were devastated mm-hmm. by that. He did give them a chance to read his manuscript before he had it published, but they they didn't. Mm-hmm. At least they didn't know. They thought it was just a biography, sure. and they were they Trusted. just didn't do it, which they blamed, blamed themselves later. Mm. But they were devastated more more so because of the twist that he made in Mary Hallett Foote's character, uh, Susan Ward, and finally in the end is probably the most egregious from, that I feel is, is that um, he has the character, um, Susan Ward, have an affair with one of the engineers, <laughs> and while they're having an affair, the Agnes, who at that in the story is a little girl, drowns in one of the irrigation canals. And many people that read the book and know that it's based on Mary Hallett Foote's life then think that that's think that's true that that's one of the skeletons in the closet Mm -hmm. when in fact Agnes was um, as I said we talked about before Mm -hmm. died in Grass Valley at the age of 17. Wow. So that that's sort of the story of it (laughs) but there are many people that 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 do respect Stegner's work and many many and so it's a little hard to Mm -hmm. deal with the topic and you know, not be on one side or the other. <laughs> sure. So if you want to learn about Mary Halleck Foote's life, get her memoir or this book, The Stone House and the Canyon. That's where you're going to get the true stories. Right, right. Um, if you want to read a more fictional version, you could you could check that out. But yeah. tell us a little, too, about the Fair Use uh, Theater. Fair Use is in, um, Sands Hall, who's a friend of mine, back quite a few years ago was asked to, she was in around the Tahoe area, I believe, and was asked to help write this a play about about Angle of Repose. And she started to write this story, you know, to, to write some kind of a, a reading or a play, and then got to digging into the the fact that so much of it was taken from Mary Hallett Foote's memoirs. And so instead of doing the play, she wrote this this reading. It's a play called Fair Use, and which she has the... Um, Characters all kind of talking to each other has uh, Mary Hallett Foote talking to Stegner in in a sense. It's very it's very it's really quite interesting, entertaining chance for the for the story to come out and and see both sides of the story, Mary Hallett Foote's side and Wallace Stegner's side. We just actually had another production of it mounted here this fall. Last fall we had it, and it was very good. Everyone really enjoyed it a lot. 
the Fair Use Theater play is something our friends at Radio Boise have posted on a SoundCloud, so I will post a link to that on uh, the website so people can check that out. Um, many years ago, I heard that these amazing Jeep trails existed that were up there now. Lytle Gulch or Little Gulch is a great local trail for hiking, horseback riding, and mountain bike riding. Near the Oregon Trail, it's a hike that connects you to dirt roads that connect to the Oregon Trail system or to Bonneville Point. What do you think Mary Halleck Foote would think about the disc golf course near the property <laughs> or the hundreds of stand-up paddle boarders that are fighting for water space on a hot summer day in Boise? I think she would appreciate it a lot. I, they, Again, she loved the canyon most of the time, and they did a lot of exploring around as well. In fact, they had a really funny story. She tells a really funny story of, of they had they had all they had some friends come up from Boise and they went across in the in the uh, irrigator and had some good times and then it was time to go home and Arthur decided he was just going to take a boat down the river to Boise and <laughs> and of course not realizing you know he's a from the east not really realizing what rivers are like in the west <laughs> and of course it was quite <laughs> a scary ride and they made it but he said that uh, he would never take his wife to ever do a thing like that again. And she said, so I guess there will be no inland inland voyages on the Boise River <laughs> with us. But that being the, to your point, I think she would have enjoyed just the um, people appreciating that, that whole concept of the canyon, the river, the, the, the hills, the, the landscape, the vegetation. She, she appreciated it all and, and made some gorgeous, gorgeous... Um, lyrical um, writings about the canyon. Right. So again, looking back at the time period of all that was going on, um, I was looking up the actual dates because I was telling you what little I had learned about the the dam system here because the waterways started everything for farmers and and other kinds of life here. So I learned that Diversion Dam uh, that I told you creeps me out was built (laughs) in 1909. I don't know why. So it was built in 1909 to supply power to build Rock Dam, which was 1911 through 1915, and it was the tallest dam until 1925. And the Lucky Peak didn't get built until about 1955. So that's a long history of waterways. So it was many years after their trials and tribulations of trying to make the irrigation, all the engineering meetings they had, and they were trying to get it going. And mm-hmm. what I understood was that later... They actually used those plans they made after they were well on moved to California or wherever. Yes. So um, they used they used his plans. Mm-hmm. They might have seen it as a failure, but ultimately it was still their plan. Yeah. So they again didn't get credit for it. I know. I mean, he he, he was the one that envisioned seventy five miles of canals that would feed five thousand lateral canals. And imagine that's the other thing. Imagine what Boise looked like as far as um, you know. Now we see the green and the trees and. And all the farmland, mm-hmm. but then it was just dry, <laughs> pretty much dry desert. And that irrigation, I mean, literally turned Boise green. Right. And then I was, I, I forgot to look up when New York Canal was built, but I remembered reading because I didn't know this. I always thought, why do they call it the New York Canal? And I guess because the funding was from New York. They were New York investors. Yes. New York investors. Little things you learn mm-hmm. on the way. Um, so we are speaking with Stacy Gwill, author of Stonehouse in the Canyon. I would love to know about other projects you have out there and upcoming releases or how to get a hold of your stuff. Pardon? Oh. How, how, do we, how do we find your materials? Oh, I have a website, uh, which is just my name, stacygwill.com. 
The book is available at both of the, all three of the libraries, downtown library, the library in Southeast Boise. The book is available at Rediscovered Books, both of their, both of their stores, both of their bookstores. It's also at the Historical Museum gift shop. So it's out there. (laughs) And speaking of museum, we were talking about wouldn't it be nice if at some point they might acknowledge this whole story. So hopefully down the future that can be something that will happen. We'd love for more people to know the story. So we're going to make a little film about this on top of this podcast. I think that will be wonderful. All right. I will leave with uh, one of my favorite quotes. The uh, the angle of repose definition is the angle of maximum slope at which a heap of any loose solid material as earth will stand without falling. And uh, Mary Halleck Foote said, often I thought one of the phrases, angle of repose, which was too good to waste on rock slides or heaps of sand, each one of us was slipping and crawling and grinding along, seeking what to us was that angle, but we were not any of us ready for repose. Isn't that beautiful? Such a great writer, such a great illustrator, and a great part of Boise history that I'm so excited we can now share with others. Uh, Stacey Gwill, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Rochelle.